You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Ron Friends, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is our fourth episode, but it's also the the 16th episode of our Thor series. And it, the reason why this, the first Thor episode we're doing here is Volume 16 is because we're talking about the Epic Collections, and they are published out of order, so we are publishing our episodes out of order as well. Just a few housekeeping rules before we dive into this, uh, to this uh, volume. Um, if you want to reach us, you can email epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com, and you can visit us on Facebook or Twitter. You'll leave some comments there. We'd love to hear what you have to say about this volume and any other ones that, that you come across. In preparation for this episode, I got to talk to Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends about their work specifically on Thor, and we're going to be putting clips from those interviews in, uh, in here, uh, along with one clip um, from Eric Larson. And we'll get to that when we talk about his, his issue here. Uh, and you can find the Eric Larson interview at um, comicshenanigans.podbean.com. That's uh, Adam Chapman's podcast, and he's one of my other hosts. He, he is uh, talking to me about Spider-Man. He does a lot of great interviews there. So head over there if you want to hear the full Eric Larson interview. If you want to hear the full Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends interviews, I'm going to be releasing those in a few months. So you can just wait for it then. But as a special bonus for all of the people who are supporting um, this podcast and the other podcasts that are part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network, um, I'm going to be releasing those interviews now. So you can hear them now instead of having to wait uh, for a little while. It's our way of saying thank you for being a supporter. So you can also hear interviews from Jim Shooter and Jerry Conway. They're up there now as well. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to you, my co-host for these Thor volumes. Um, welcome to the show, Craig. Hi, Curtis. Craig, what is your history with comics? Tell us how you got so involved with uh, collecting and just loving the comic genre in general. Uh, actually, you got me involved with comics. I did. Uh, the very first comic I ever got, I was, I don't know how old, eight, nine years old, and it was a reprint of the issue where Spider-Man decides to try out for the Fantastic Four and he breaks into the Baxter building. And I read that and I folded that and I rolled it up and it was completely ruined and I have no idea where it is, but I do know that the last time I saw it, it was in several pieces. <laughs> um, and that was the first one I ever bought or ever received. And from there, uh, I used to wander into 7-Eleven to buy them. Yep. And then one day uh, I discovered that there was actual comic shops Whoa, and, you might yeah, must have blown... <laughs> blew my mind. Um, and actually, great aside for that, when I was a kid, the first comic shop we found was the other side of Vancouver from where I live. 
and my dad had gotten sick of driving me across all of Vancouver and told me to see if I could find a closer one to home. So I'm old, went in the phone book, looked up <laughs> yeah. comic shops, found none uh, near my house, found one without an address called The Comic Strip, and I called it. And uh, some lady answered, and there was such, quite a bit of confusion because she was saying, oh, we come to you. And I was saying, well, I don't understand why you come to me. Where are you located? And uh -oh. she says, no, 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 we come to you. <laughs> and then she says, how old are you? And I said, I am 10. And she said, are your parents? And I said, yes, but they don't like comic books. Yeah. And it turns out it was a, you could order a joke stripper. Uh, oh, so boy. There was, there was that side. But uh, I eventually found a comic shop near me, and then I ended up working. I spent uh, the entire history of Elfstar Comics in Vancouver. Uh, from from the first week they opened till the last week they were in business. Ten years later, uh, I was at Elfsar um, and had a great opportunity to connect with the local comic scene, uh, both fans and uh, actors from the various shows that are filmed here, and a lot of the local artists and writers and, and talent uh, in Vancouver. And um, continued to um, just foster my love of, of this awesome medium. Do you have a favorite comic? No, I've, um, well, I guess you could say Gen 13, it's not actually the greatest comic ever, but <laughs> it was the first one I went from from beginning to end with, and that was, I think, mostly just from when it started, Yeah. more than anything, that was an opportunity. Uh, but I have usually followed creators, so I tend to follow creators, or I will follow characters sometimes. Um, but there's a lot of artists and writers who I will follow from book to book. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But let's, uh, let's talk about Thor here. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to be talking about Thor, War of the Pantheons. This is the Epic Collection, Volume 16, and it covers Thor number 383 to 400. And it, this, these are during the years 1987 and 1989. So I particularly uh, enjoyed this volume because DeFalco and Friends are two creators that I have followed yep. from... But not from the beginning of their careers. I didn't encounter them until the 90s, specifically when they were involved with Maximum Carnage, which was a, a pinnacle for me. It was a big moment. It was the first story arc where I had actually figured out that, wait, there's a story arc. These are concurrent. <laughs> yep. And before that, I had just picked up random issues that looked interesting. It had never occurred to me that I needed to get the to get all next issue or yeah. previous issue. Um, I don't know if I just had envisioned the way the rest of the story would be ending, but Maximum Carnage was the first one where I actually felt compelled to go and hunt down every issue, and DeFalco and Friends were two of the creators involved in that, that bigger project. And from there I ended up on Thunderstrike, which was again DeFalco and Friends, and as you uncovered in your interviews and in this book itself, the the beginning, the seeds of Thunderstrike are actually in this. Yep. And I had... I had no idea of that. Nice. Um, so it was a, a great revelation for me to touch on this this collection. Cool. Yeah, I have actually, this is a um, big reveal here. I've never really been a fan of Thor. Um, he's always, um, I've always found his books to be kind of dry. Um, and I, I guess I'm, I'm just more of an X-Men, Spider-Man guy. And um, him being so kind of outer worldly and larger than life kind of it's just it never totally ap appealed to me i think i think you've missed out and I, then i think you're gonna have to revisit thor well and after reading this volume i agree because this i really enjoyed this and um and this is not even the most acclaimed run on thor so if uh if this is uh if this is great then there's 
I'm sure there's other great stuff out there. Um, I'll definitely check out uh, the um, Simonson, the Walter Simonson run that came right before this, and uh, I, I hear that Dan Jurgens had a great run as well, and um, some of the new stuff that's happening um, these days with Jane Foster, I, I hear, is really good too. So, yeah, this has inspired me to check out more Thor. So, let's see. Um, what what do we need to know about this book going into it? If I've never read Thor before, what do our listeners need to know about Thor in order to fully comprehend this book? Actually, I would say the one flaw, it may be too hard a word, but challenge with this book is that it's not entirely accessible to somebody who hasn't read Thor. Um, the major story that happens in this book builds off of a massive Walter Simonson story yeah. that happened uh, several years before he parted from the book. It, it was a story that took place in issues uh, 351 to 353, and, and as you said, this book starts at uh, 383, so 30 years, or 30 issues, not 30 years, 30 issues later. Right. Um, it's probably three years. Three three years, yeah, about three years later is when um, DeFalco and friends come in, and even then they didn't start right away. The first few issues are standalones. I thought they were great standalone stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they, when they were officially taking over the book, that's when they started to build on So I would say that's the one challenge if you're going to read this book is that it it has a lot of it 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 works backwards and provides closure mm-hmm. or new interpretations of a really great Walter Simonson story um, but if you haven't read that um, the book only gives you little hints as to when these things happened but, right um, yeah and if you're only familiar with Thor in the movies um, this will be a little interesting for you as well because there's a lot of changes there are a lot of changes here like um, Balder is the rule, ruler of Asgard in this yeah, one. Yeah, and that, well, that is because of the Walter Simonson right. story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so that, that right off the bat um, is something that you need to know, that Odin is not, uh, he's not in charge. He's presumed dead right now. Um, he, yeah, it was a, I, I, I think we should probably, if we're going to continue, just give a spoiler alert to people. Oh, oh yeah, that's, um, well, that, if you're going to read this book, that's not really a spoiler alert because you find that out right away that that Baldur's in charge. Um, if you haven't run read the Simonson run, then that's going to be a, a spoiler alert. But there are going to be lots of spoilers in this podcast for sure because we're going to go through this issue by issue and talk about kind of hopefully get kind of in the nitty gritty of all of these these things here. So be warned. We'll keep it generic to begin with, but once we get into the the issues, yeah, we're, we'll. We'll probably spoil everything in this book. <laughs> um, so read the book first. Read the book first. Or um, read it as you listen to it. That's and that's kind of a cool thing. A couple of listeners have already said I um, I read the book along with the podcast and it was a great experience. Like they'd read a chapter, they listen to a little bit of the podcast where we talk about it, and it's I think that's kind of a fun thing to do. Um, so that's yeah, that's really neat. Um, so at the beginning of this book, Thor's wearing battle armor. And that comes out of Simonson as well, um, because Simonson, in, in one of the bigger stories there, Thor's body gets broken so much that his he has to wear this armor um, because his body is just brittle and is, is about to break. So, um, and he's got this he's got this big beard because his body he's got all of these scars apparently um, all over his face. 
and he just wears the beard to cover those up. But right at the beginning of the book, they kind of DeFalco kind of strips away all of that and and takes Thor back to the way he looked kind of originally in the sixties. Yeah, actually, that was the one. Um, I would say disappointment because I was actually I prefer the not broken, brittle Thor. But I thought that was um, an interesting. We're just going to do away with it. We're not going to have some elaborate story to to explain this way. It's just, yeah, he's just going to heal and yeah. fix it. But I think um, that's kind of when a new creator takes over. They, I think, a lot of the time, either they totally embrace what the other creator has done. Or they're like, I want to bring this character back to basics. Well, it was interesting because, for the most part, I think DeFalco truly embraced Simonson's work and found a great way to work off of it. Yep. I just found it interesting, but also preferable. Like, I was conflicted almost in that I was glad of this. Yeah. But also surprised at the, um, the just we're just doing it. There was no build up or story arc around right. it. It was so it was it was both a great relief. For me, they were getting proper Thor, or what I consider to be proper Thor. Yeah. But also... Too bad. We're just going to yeah. drop this bit of story. Okay, well, let's get right into the issues then. And we can start at the beginning with issue number 383. It's called This Secret Love. And um, I have a little clip of... Tom DeFalco talking about how he and Ron Friends got involved um, in, in Thor because they were originally trying to get onto a Daredevil book, but uh, that didn't really work out. So I'm going to play that clip here. The, the editor was Ralph Macchio, and, and he was looking for a team to take over Daredevil. So Ron and I started talking about Daredevil, and we came up with a bunch of ideas of things we would want to do with Daredevil. So I went in there and I, you know, basically started to try to pitch Ralph on the idea of, you know, assigning us Daredevil. And he said to me, um, yeah, 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 I, I need to get a team on Daredevil, but right now my biggest problem is Thor. And I said, well, what's your problem with Thor? He said, the book is so late. I am, I am desperate. I got to get some fill-ins because this book is, this this book is just, you know, um, it, it's just ridiculously late. And and if I don't get some fill-ins, we're going to miss some, we're going to miss shipping. So I said, um, he, he said, do you think you and Ron could do an issue with Thor? And I said, yeah, we could try. See, see if we come up with something. And we. Um, I think the, the first one we did, was that the uh, Secret Wars one? Yes, it was. We wanted to come up with a story that didn't affect continuity, didn't affect anything, and yet was an interesting Thor story. So we came up with this, the Secret Wars one. Um, and yeah, Ralph seemed to like it. You know, once I was finished scripting the, you know, scripting the issue, I said to Ralph, okay, you want to talk about Daredevil now? He says, no, 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 I, I'm still... You know, he says, you guys really helped me out, but I'm still, this book is still, you know, really late. I, I could really use another fill-in. And I said, yeah, okay. And um, I spoke to Ron, which was saying, well, you know, we got to come up with an, another story that doesn't affect anything. Um, and 
in our discussion, somehow or other, we came up with the Dargothor story. I, I really don't remember, you know, whose initial idea it was. Since since I I look back and I think of it as a good idea, I'm going to say it was probably Ron's. <laughs> you know, we came up with that story. We get pitched it to Ralph. Ralph liked it. We did this story, and then once we once once I was done with my part on that, I said, "So Ralph, how about?" You know, we talk about Daredevil now. He says, well, actually, I want to offer you guys, you guys a book. I said, terrific, Daredevil. He says, no, I want you to do Thor. <laughs> and I said to him, we can't do Thor. He says, why not? I said, you know, Ron and I are street-level guys. Thor is a cosmic book. We don't do cosmic. And he said, you just did two issues. <laughs> and I said, but, those, they, were, but they were fill-ins, you know? I said, well, you know, with a fill-in, I could, I could do a fill-in of, of anything. Um, doesn't mean I could, I could do another, you know, do another issue of it. Uh, you know, do, do the book on the re regular basis. And, and, and at the time, Saab Yusema was the regular penciler on Thor. Uh, Walt was going to, Walt Simonson was, was leaving the book, but Sal was still supposed to be the regular penciler. So I said, well, what about... What about Sal? And uh, he said, well, you know, we can always tell Sal that you come with your own penciler. I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to tell Sal that, you know, hey, we're going to knock you off your book. That, I said, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, so I said, you know what, how about we just forget it? And, um, and I, I guess we were a little loud when we're having this discussion and, and Jim Salakrup comes in and he says, um, listen, I, I overheard you guys, at, you know, about Salvia Sema said, I was actually thinking of offering him one of the Spider-Man books, but it'd be okay if I offered him a Spider-Man book. <laughs> and, and, and Ralph says, Ter terrific. Give him Spider-Man. And, you know, and then I could put Ron and, you know, Ron and Tom on, on, on Thor. And then, uh, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, it's one thing if Sal wants to do Spider-Man, but he shouldn't be, you know, knocked off of Thor to, to be put on a book because, you know, because he's Sal Buscema. He, he should be able to decide what he's doing, not, you know. Right. Should, people shouldn't be maneuvering behind. So I called up Sal. And, and I said, Sal, I just want to make sure that this is something you want to do. And he says to me, absolutely. He says, Spider-Man is so much easier than doing <laughs> Thor and doing all the crazy stuff. This clip um, changed my understanding of the first three stories in this book. Because I read this and um, I loved the three stories. The two by DeFalco and Friends and the one by by uh, Lee and Larson. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in, in a moment. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact, I think one of the great... Um, tragedies of comics right now is that they're so serialized and we don't get those great single issue stories and I think there's right. a real art to writing a 22 page story that still manages to have a beginning and a climax and a denouement and can be exciting um, and I think those are a great way of engaging readers that I think is part of what makes comics intimidating to novices today is that they're so serialized and intertwined Yeah, and I love that about this book because it started with those stories but then hearing the, that, that clip where they're talking about how this 
was actually just out of necessity to fill a schedule. Yeah. Um, I thought it really changed everything, but then almost made it seem even better because they were on such a rush to do it so that they could produce such exciting stories on such a breakneck pace was right. even more impressive to me. Yeah, I think so. Um, what did you think of this? Have you read The Secret Wars? Yes. Yeah. Um, what did you think of this first story that takes place kind of in the middle of Secret Wars? I, I thought it was a lot of fun. Actually, I think I enjoyed it more than Secret Wars itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, Could be, yeah. Secret Wars is an interesting book. Some of it's great and a lot of it's kind of hard to get through. But, um, yeah, this one was kind of nice. It, it, you you don't need to have read Secret Wars in order to enjoy this I, I actually think you will appreciate Secret Wars War if you just read this. Uh, yeah. Personally. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, that's good. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I appreciated what he did. And you, one of the nice things is he kind of sums up Secret Wars in just kind of two pages. So um, you get the meat of it. No, don't get me wrong. I actually Secret Wars is a fun read. You should it's, read Secret Wars. I'm 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 being harsh on it. It is a fun read, and there's some big things for the Marvel universe. If you're a Marvel huge. fan, Secret Wars I would say has larger lasting implications than a lot of the events that Marvel churns out on an annual basis today. I think so, and it was one of the first. It's a seminal piece of Marvel history that definitely should be picked up. And probably, whether you realize it or not, some of your favorite characters originate there, or even the modern iteration of those characters originates there. The biggest among them is Venom. Right, yeah, yeah, the black costume. Although don't don't read Secret Wars expecting to encounter Venom. He doesn't exist yet. (laughs) But his origin... Or his existence would not be possible without it. Well, and and Thing is dramatically affected. It, it um, what happens to the Thing in um, in Secret Wars has long-lasting effects on uh, Fantastic Four for several years um, because he's just removed from the picture for quite a while. And uh, yeah, there's just a it's yeah it's it's good. And this one in this one we get a, a side story where. Um, it just kind of talks about a, one little moment in Secret Wars. It kind of happens like between two panels where um, Thor and Enchantress kind of have this moment where they're talking about themselves and their relationship. Um, and, you know, there's, there's of course, some fighting and whatnot and, and stuff. But, yeah, it's just a really good kind of character piece. Um, it, it's... Uh, it exists out of time, like you said. It, like the, we heard in the interview, it was just a fill-in, so they had to write something that didn't affect or didn't tie into what was going on before. Uh, so yeah, they just came up with this nice piece, and um, yeah, I like it when when artists or when writers will revisit an old story and insert a little bit of kind of what happened when we weren't looking. I like it when they revisit it this well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't happen quite that way. We could say like all of the the, the things that came after the Age of Apocalypse story. Yeah, yeah, there's been some. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say they've been bad, um, but uh, I don't think they um, revisited those things as efficiently or as effectively as, as Defalco did here. Yeah. So the next issue, three hundred and eighty-four, is called "Who Shall Be Worthy," and it's another fill-in. Um, by DeFalco and Friends, and this one takes us to the future. Um, do you want to say a little bit about this one? I thought this one was really interesting. It it was DeFalco and Friends playing with the concept of Thor without playing with the character of Thor. Yeah. And they really picked up on the if ye be worthy, or whosoever is worthy, I can't remember the exact inscription on the Ulner, but but 
Um, they really played on that. And before this, there had only been one other person other than Thor to possess Thor's hammer. Right. And it's interesting because that they they play with that worthiness concept twice in this book, and again in the future, that that worthiness concept has become a theme for Thor books. And yeah. today is really important to the Thor books if you're reading Thor now, because Thor is not the one who is worthy of his yeah, own hammer. The it's unworthy the, Thor. But we're we're visiting someone else. But for this one, they play along with that. Thor Thor's hammer is has become this point of hope for a, a dystopian future society. Yeah. And they are desperately seeking someone who can lift it. It's sort of like a King Arthur type legend, but set in the future. Yeah. But it's yeah. Not, it's it's Thor's hammer. And eventually there's this character who who is able to to lift Thor's hammer. He proves worthy. And that's the story, is is this person who proves worthy of of being Thor and brings hope and um, a measure of salvation back to this futuristic society with the powers of Thor. And I thought that was very interesting because they really wanted to play around the concept without the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really neat to see. And the one other character you'd mentioned already is Beta Ray Bill. Yes. Um, who came out a few years before this. Walter, that was kind of the one of the first that, things that, that Simonson is the, did. He, that happens actually in the major story arc that this book references back to. Right. Um, when the, the when the Rainbow Bridge is broken and when they first deal with Surtur and when Odin disappears and Balder takes over. And it's all part of that same, same piece. Yeah. So. Yeah, and so they're really just expanding on the mythology. This is kind of where this whole thing gets kind of expanded, yeah. I, I do have to say, though, uh, future Thor's spiky football pads were kind of lame. <laughs> it's... Um, it's it's a precursor to what we'd see a lot in the 90s. So what you're saying is I can blame uh, Volko for this? You can, well, Ron Friends probably did the design, I think. But uh, <laughs> you can, yeah, you can, you can blame them, I suppose. Okay, so the third issue in here, number 385, Be Thou God or Monster. Could we not have a more Stanley title than that? <laughs> um, this, this was a weird one. In the it, it's I, it it was a weird one. It was a weird one when I read it. It was it's definitely enjoyable out and of yet, place. Um, but then when we've looked into it a little bit more, getting some of the context of why it exists, that the book was running late, that they wanted to make sure they could keep a, a publication and shipping schedule, um, and that they'd already brought in uh, the Defalco Friends team just to try and catch them up, and that's why you have those two standalone issues by them. Yeah. It makes more sense why this exists. Right. And the story itself is fun, but inconsequential. However, the book itself proved to be really important. So we have a, a reader comment from the Marvel Masterworks f- forum. Goat Goblet says, something I found kind of odd was the fill-in issue that was penciled by Eric Larson and scripted by Stan Lee. It's a strange combo, the creator and the primary author of so much of the original Marvel Universe and one of the founders of Image. I had no idea they had ever collaborated. But they didn't really collaborate. That's no. an interesting thing. This was, a, yeah. this was a collaboration by distance. So I have a clip um, of Eric Larson actually talking about this. So I'm going to put that in re- right now. I had sent my samples around to pretty much anybody I could think of. Um, I had met Jim Shooter uh, year, a year earlier, maybe, and, and we had talked through doing a, a Thor story um, at a convention in Chicago. And so once I'd drawn that, I had these 
pretty awesome samples because it was just entirely playing to my strengths. It's two big dudes just kicking the crap out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like I got Hulk versus Thor just pounding the piss out of each other, and I can show this to everybody. And that got me the job doing the DNA gents. So it looks like Jim Shooter did the plot of this and then gave that over because he had the script by Stan Lee that's probably been sitting in his filing cabinet for a long time and gave it over to Eric Larson as a tryout. So um, Jim Shooter gave him the basic plot, probably the structure because Eric Larson knew the game of what kind of maybe a page-to-page breakdown and then let Eric do the battle sequences himself. So this is very interesting. This is Eric Larson's first comic. But this is also the last time Stan Lee contributed to the Thor books. I mean, I know Stan Lee didn't intentionally know he was contributing, but this is over 100 issues since he left this book. And then he has this one last time where you're going to read a Stan Lee contribution to the Thor books. That's pretty cool. And it's kind of neat that these two people who have been... I would argue reasonably well. I mean, Stanley is iconic, and yep. I think you could argue that Eric Larson has also had a, a has been an iconic influence on on this industry, and that this odd culmination of events resulted in in what is a fun if unimportant story. Yeah, well, it's um, it's really just one big fight scene. That's all it is is a big battle. It's um, it's fine as a standalone issue. The problem, the problem with having these three issues at the beginning of the book is that it takes a while for the action to get going. Like in a historical context, we understand why they're there. But if you're just picking up this book, I think you mentioned it as well. It's like, well, why are we getting these three unrelated Thor stories? One, the first story is something that happened in the past. The, the second story is something that happened in the future. And the second story, they put a disclaimer right at the, in the first page um, and so at a time in the not so in the not too distant past when the god of thunder went beardless and his beloved father Odin still strode the halls of Asgard so they're already they're pointing out that this doesn't take place in the normal run oh, yeah, of it's well out of right continuity here. they're telling you um, so we have three out of continuity stories before we actually get into the thing so um, you know the point of the epic collections is to print every single issue of thor um, if this were just a regular collection, collecting a story, these three issues wouldn't but be But I, in I there. think that this, those three stories, their inclusion is why this epic collection series is kind of neat. Right. Because they're giving out, because you wouldn't fit those into a trade. No. Because trade paper arcs. There is no other place you would see collect, these books. Yeah, they collect the story arcs. Yeah. And there's no story arc. So unless you happen to have those issues or you're scrounging through a dollar bin and come across them. Yeah. Um, You'd never then, come across them again. Then you won't. And no, and I think that's great. Or you're, you're a major Eric Larson fan going back to the beginning. <laughs> right. You, you have this issue somewhere autographed by him, I'm sure, and are well, excited about it. It just makes for an odd reading experience um, for a single volume. Yes, if you want the actual epic story, if you're reading the word epic and you're reading that as you're going to get a big epic story, you want to skip ahead to uh, issue 386. Yeah. And speaking of 386, that's where our story begins. It's called When Warriors Clash. And this is the very first official issue by DeFalco and Friends when they are now actually on board with this title and they can start doing things that they want to do. Um, and in this, this issue... Um, they come across, <laughs> right in the first page, actually, or the second page, 
Thor shaves off his beard. So it's like one of the first things that uh, that they want to do is kind of bring Thor back to the way he looked before. He still wears his armor um, in battle. But it, it seems optional now. But it, yeah, it does. Uh, in fact, it seems that he wears it because it enhances his powers, the way they've, they have interpreted it. I thought the fact they open with the shaving of his beard, like the very first panel is a troll shaving Thor's beard, <laughs> Yeah, is a like very specific imagery of this is a clean slate. Right. Yeah, and you get that often with um, kind of a, a imagery of rebirth in movies and stuff. It's always... Um, shaving beards. I don't know what you do with a woman, but uh, um, if if a character is, is, is down kind of as low as they go and then they have this epiphany and they're going to start all over again, the first thing they do is they shave their beard. And, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just one of those things. It, it definitely is symbolic. So in this issue, we are introduced to Lear, the Lord of Lightning and the God of the Spear. Um, all throughout Thor's history, we get to meet various different mythologies. Like Hercules is a reoccurring character in has been for forever in Thor. From and um, Seth, the uh, Egyptian god, has been. Uh, yep. the and, Egyptian gods, but Seth in particular, it shows up often. In- and Pluto is a is a reoccurring villain. Um, and now we have some Celtic characters in here too. Um, so these characters are created by. DeFalco and friends. I like Lear. I would read more Lear. Yeah, it's too bad that he kind of doesn't really show up again until a little bit later and only for a short time. But actually, um, much later down the line, Lear comes back. Yes. Um, so but it's not, not in this collection, unfortunately. Not in this collection. In fact, I don't even think in the fo- collection that follows this, Lear comes back. I think it's even after that. Avalon and Asgard apparently have a long history of, um, a long bad history of being kind of at odds, but we've never really seen them before. Well, I mean, historically, uh, Vikings raided the coasts of of the English and Scottish islands, so... Oh, I guess that makes I mean, sense then, yeah. If you're, so I, I can see how there'd be that, that clash. Um, but they have to, they, they have to overcome that later on in this story, and we'll get to that when they, when that, that story appears. Um, it's it's um, nice that they were, knew they were going to be on this book for a while because they write this story and it is you don't realize how much is going to come back later yeah this is a one and done issue it's a standalone it issue it seems like a standalone issue but, but it has major implications these, later the, on the two of them were planning well as we learned or from your interview as you learned from your interview and they were able to share for, with me um, they had some really long-term plans that start in this collection that aren't apparent at all. Right. So. Yeah, really cool stuff. You'll have to uh, listen to the full interview for for those details. I don't want to give everything away in, no. in, the issue, uh, in the episode here. But you can now read this and try and guess what those Easter eggs are. Yeah. Um, the next issue is called Judgment Day, issue 387. And this kind of begins the three-part Celestial story, which is collected in a volume called Alone Against the Celestials. Um, it's kind of uh, the, the first big story arc for DeFalco and friends here. And in this story, 
the uh, Thor is transported to a planet that is being judged by Arishim, the celestial, the judge. Um, apparently, their their planet is just no good, and they're going to be wiped out. Well, the people on the planet are good. Arishim comes and judges if the dominant species on any given planet is worthy of life, and if they're not, then the celestials. And if you don't know the celestials, in the context of the Marvel universe, the celestials are like space gods, and the space gods. Um, it's not clear if they're actually gods or if they're just so ancient and advanced that they far exceed everyone else. And if you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy, the movie, they're in the head of a one of these space gods. Um, there's, a, there's that whole fight scene that, that takes place. But um, in this case, one of the space gods, Arishim, has shown up to decide if the dominant species on this planet is worthy of life. Right. And he's deciding that they're not worthy of life. Well, to be fair, it's a planet of rogues and pirates. And <laughs> um, it was set up to, to as a, a sort of smuggling and criminal city or planet, so I, I, I kind of agree with his ruling. Yeah, I found it kind of odd that Thor would go to bat for these guys. Um, not because... I mean, he does it because he's kind of in debt to them, because they, they save him. Because he's he's crash landed on here and they they kind of nurse him back to nurse him back to health, so he feels like he owes them. But I don't think he even realizes. Like I thought it was interesting as well because he doesn't question anything they say. He saved him. But he doesn't know that, and he also doesn't know that they tried to nuke him first. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's true. I mean, I guess these are rogues and pirates we're talking about. Yeah, like he, Thor, Thor just unquestionably believes them when they're like, "Yeah, we saved your life." And he never asks any follow-up questions. He's just like, oh, you guys saved my life. I owe you a debt. Right. And then they're immediately like, good thing you said you owe us a debt. We need you to fight some <laughs> celestials. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's keep on moving through to the second chapter of this story, which is called Alone Against the Celestials, issue 388. Well, it's um, right at the end of the first chapter is when the second celestial shows up. Thor... Thor thinks he has to fight Arishem, and, and so he sets about fighting Arishem, and it really, you know, Thor is frustrated. He's not getting anywhere, and it does not appear that he will be able to defeat Arishem, and then it turns out Arishem doesn't do anything except judge, and then uh, Exitar, Exitar, the executioner. Or the exterminator. So Exitar, the exterminator, he shows up, and he he is way more formidable than Arishem. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love this double this double page. It's like this giant foot taking up a good quarter of the page. Arishem is the size of, of Exeter's big toe. And then Thor's just this tiny little dot right in the middle there. In fact, if not for the word bubble, you wouldn't know where he was. Nope, not at all. It's just, uh, it's really great. And I mean, this is basically, like he says odds blood, but that's basically his old school WTF. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So the next chapter, Alone Against the Celestials, is uh, is Thor figuring out how he's even going to go about fighting these guys. Uh, he's wearing his battle armor, so he's well protected, <laughs> apparently. He but, had it in a sack. Remember, he says, I, I had a bag with me. Where's my bag? Yeah. Uh, and so he goes off to try and fight them. And the, the kind of interesting thing about this is that he goes inside the head of a celestial. 
This is the first time anybody's ever gone inside to see what it's like. And he, they, there's so much, I feel like so much Steve Ditko influence inside this celestial head. Like there's so much Kirby influence with the celestial itself because Kirby created celestials. But then once we get inside, all this whole world is something you'd see in old issues of Doctor I, Strange. I think that this collection really demonstrates the versatility of um, Friends yeah. as an artist. Uh, the later issues, there are some later issues where um, he is channeling Kirby like incredibly. Oh, yeah. And you're right. This one, um, this one is Ditko. Yeah, it's really neat. There's just some great creativity. And like, what do you see in, inside the head of a celestial? It's, I always thought that it would be, you know, a face, but it's actually uh, existence. <laughs> it's, I would, I know you didn't ask anybody, I would love to know how much of, of the inside of the celestial was from DeFalco and where DeFalco had said, like, they see this, and how much of this was DeFalco just said, Ron, what do, is inside? Yeah, yeah, Ron, <laughs> what is inside the head of a giant space god? And then friends just drew it. And then it's probably what happened. Um, from what I understand about their creative relationship, um, DeFalco, because that's the Marvel way of doing things is you just have the, the the writer lays out the plot, and then says artist go for it, and then the artist goes for it, and then the writer goes back and writes the script over top of the art. And so I'm sure that Tom DeFalco just said, Ron, do your best. <laughs> and then Ron came up with this. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. I think it's really neat. It was interesting. And there is one moment in here where Thor taps twice to summon lightning. And I didn't realize he did that still. Because I thought that was a purely Eric Masterson thing that he had to do when he was when he had his Earth identity, when he was bound to Earth. Eric Masterson. I mean, sorry, not Eric Masterson. I mean, Don Blake. Um, I thought that was strictly a Don Blake thing when in the, in the 60s because he had to tap twice to summon lightning. But apparently he still does it here. I don't think he does that anymore in the comics. Uh, I don't know what he does at the moment. I haven't been reading Unworthy Thor. Maybe he doesn't summon lightning at all. He's unworthy. Yeah. Maybe he taps. <laughs> maybe he taps regularly. He taps happens, all the time. He's very upset about oh, it. Oh man. <laughs> okay. So inside, at the very end of this book, um, Thor gets inside the head of, uh, uh, and he meets this giant um, creature, humanoid. humanoid creature. What does he have a name? No. And uh, the creature just kind of starts pounding Thor, and Thor pounds him back. And Thor, um, this is kind of where his battle armor gets destroyed. But, you know, he apparently doesn't really need it. Well, he, yeah. he takes the he takes off his belt, which apparently helps channel his life force, uh, his Asgardian life force. And he ties his belt around um, Mjolnir, and he, um, he smashes his way into the, what he thinks is the brain of the... Celestial, and that is what destroys not only his armor but also his, his hammer. His hammer, yeah, his famous hammer. And um, it's always devastating to see the hammer get get destroyed because that happens kind of on a fairly regular basis. But uh, I love the last page where he just—it uh, doesn't matter that he doesn't have a hammer. He's taking the stick, the handle of the hammer, and going into battle 
anyway. <laughs> yeah, kind of like a billy club. He's just holding the shaft to the yep. hammer, and it, yeah, he'll still he'll still go for it. That, that's the that's his character right there. He he doesn't rely on his hammer um, or his powers even. He'll just he'll he's noble and will go for it anyway. Yeah. Uh, the next chapter is uh, issue number three hundred and eighty nine called "When the Thunder Fails." This is the final part of this three part series, and in here we have. Uh, um, there's one character. What is this girl's name? I can't remember. I can't recall. She was the one that came up at the beginning. She's her role isn't really clear. You're not clear if she's a slave or another pirate, or she seems to have some measure of agency in this issue. But then in the first issue, when we first encounter her, she's been ordered to serve Thor however Thor wants, and uh, she doesn't seem to have much control over that. There, so I'm not entirely clear on, on her, uh, her character, and she's definitely not somebody who has um, ever come up again in the Marvel universe. Yeah, which I I found that strange. Mm-hmm. I thought that um, I thought they were setting her up to be sort of a um, a companion for him. Like yeah. I thought that that's, that's the direction they could have gone, but then she ends up. This is it. You know, this, this is, is it. Her, her her three issues. <laughs> yeah. That was it, but so we have a uh, we get to see the Celestials in action here, because um, they actually start to do their extermination, and Thor's still inside the head, but the process has already begun. He kind of spits Thor out, or what? It really spits him out because he shoots him out of his eye. I think is where he comes out of, isn't it? Is is it his eye? But the Celestial eventually. If Celestials have eyes. Oh yeah, right there. Yeah. He's out of his the front of his face. Yeah, it's not really clear. He doesn't really have a face at this point. But yeah, he kind of. Anyways, he. Thor is. I'm gonna go with spits Thor out, for <laughs> yeah. lack of a better term. Ejects Thor. Yeah. And uh, and yeah and so basically nothing that Thor can do could save this planet. They have made their decision and they're celestial, so they're just gonna go ahead and do it. Yeah. No, they begin it, and and Thor. And the uh, female character uh, attempt to shield some children, thinking that they and the children are going to die. And Thor feels like he's failed, and his last heroic act is going to be to try and use his body to shield some children from uh, this destructive force. Um, it's been months since I read this, because <laughs> so I'm rediscovering all of the details. Well, it, it's interesting, is at the end... Um, Thor lives, and so so does the woman and the children and some other characters from this planet. And we don't know who those other characters are. We never really encounter them. It's just sort of made clear that additional characters. um, I'm assuming that they were the good characters because we established that this this woman, uh, her name's Myla. I see um, in this page, Um, Myla is she's she's not a, a a bad person. Well, and she so. stays because she doesn't think it's right that they're going to let this outsider die fighting the Celestials while all of these space pirates are fighting over who gets to try and evacuate the planet. Right. Uh, they don't evacuate. None of them get away. The Celestials have trapped them all on the planet with some sort of force shield. Yeah. Um, but the, the pirates, rather than trying to assist Thor, who is trying to save their planet, are trying to flee. And, and um, Myla has this moment of conscience where she's like, no, we can't. Like, we can't let someone else fight to save us and not be willing to fight for ourselves. And Which so, is why I think she's spared here at the end. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because also, after she's spared, they send another humanoid, but he doesn't look like any of the other humanoids for some reason. 
this humanoid looks like Thor in his white tidy whiteies. <laughs> yep. Um, which is odd because the previous humanoids looked nothing like that. And if you're reading it or reading along, you'll have noticed that the previous humanoids do not appear to be Thor in his tidy whiteies. But um, this humanoid shows up and he basically says, like, good job, Thor, but you can't stay here. Um, the Celestials have said you have to go. And, oh, but here's your hammer and stuff. And he gives Thor back everything as if nothing happened. And then he just kicks Thor off the planet. Right. And that's how Thor gets to Earth. There we go. And then we get one last page to end off this issue. Um, back on Asgard, which we haven't seen yet at all. Um, through, through Or actually, no, we well, saw no, it. We were in, at we Asgard it, yeah, for the, the shaving and in the story um, right. with Lear. And uh, we do briefly see that Balder is in charge. And it's pretty clear Balder's in charge because Thor actually asks Balder's permission to go to Earth Right. And accidentally ends up on Pangoria instead fighting Celestials. That was never his intention. He wanted to go to Earth. Yes. So it was a detour. That's but right. I this is about this that. is the first time since Thor left that we are revisiting Asgard, and uh, things are going real well on Asgard. Yeah, yeah, real well. Yeah. So um, we can get into the next the next chapter here. Um, and the the thing I like about Tom DeFalco and his writing, and he does this in um, when he was on Spider Man, and he did this in Fantastic Four as well, is that he he has those little moments like this last page of this issue where it starts to say something and then he doesn't revisit it in the next issue um let me see actually he does revisit it in this issue but it's but thor is not a part of it he will spend the next something like 10 issues building this giant war that's starting on on asgard and thor's nowhere to be seen he has no idea it's happening and for a reader reading it monthly i can't even imagine like this is a whole year that's going by and this it's a slow 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 gradual build and it starts here on this page yeah and then we skip to 390 and we're i mean if you had just read the previous page at the end of 389 asgard is being invaded yep that's if what I expect I, to if see. If I'm in the picking next up 390, issue. I'm expecting that. And instead, it opens with Thor and the Avengers hanging out. Yep. And this uh, this is an interesting version of the Avengers. I'm not familiar with this period of time with them when Captain America has kind of renounced being Captain America. Not their most most formidable lineup. This is a one of those defining moments in this in this issue because the i mean we go back to asgard and see seth we are reintroduced to seth and he's kind of building up his his case for destroying asgard and stuff but the real point of this issue is well seth was in the lear Mm -hmm. issue as well right Uh, so we know that seth is uh is planning uh, something for Asgard, and we know it's not good. So this is not the first time Seth's come back. Seth was in that Lear issue briefly, and it's, again, like you were saying, these things that happen that you don't think are important or you don't remember because uh, DeFalco sets them up and then doesn't come back to them. So it's been four or five issues. What they have Four issues. Yeah. So it's been four months. If you were reading this monthly, you probably glossed over it. It was a one-page thing, and at the time, Seth just says, oh, yeah, the Asgardians have figured out that there's fissures opening in Asgard that are portals into Asgard, and it won't help them. That's right. all he says. So you don't know what else is going on yet. The thing about Seth is that he's got a really terrible reason to be attacking Asgard. He is really mad that Thor cut off his right hand, and so now he's going to kill everybody on Asgard. And Thor's not even there. 
Well, but he seems like a jerk anyways. He kills one of his own henchmen for doing what he wanted. He says, your reward is I kill you. So Seth, I guess Seth so. is not up for world's best boss. Yeah, well. But we leave Seth, and we go back to the Avengers, and, and Thor and um, the Captain, not Captain America, but just the Captain, Steve Rogers, yep. are having a heart-to-heart. Yeah, and uh, and they, they get um, interrupted by a bunch of... Um, I don't know. Who are these guys? These even? are Seth's uh, soldiers. Seth sends them to uh, fight Thor on Earth. And with them, he sends Grog the God Crusher. The God Crusher. Which, by the way, with his name being Grog the God Crusher, I kept thinking that was just a really strong beer. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, but, the, yeah, so the captain and Thor have to take care of all these guys. And Black Knight shows up as well. For kind of no real reason. Black Knight's inclusion in this whole thing seems pointless. From the very moment he shows up, I love Black Knight. Um, I don't think Black Knight ever has been given his fair uh, attention in the Marvel Universe, although I also might be like the only fan of the Black Knight. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Especially when he's on his winged horse, which rarely shows up. Right. Um, But Black Knight, I mean, of all the Avengers you could pick to go and fight a bunch of henchman of an evil Egyptian god who wants to murder an Asgardian god. I mean, you just had She-Hulk. Like, if you were going to pit someone against them, you would think She-Hulk, but they don't. They pick the Black Knight. Yeah. And so Black Knight joins into this this battle. Yeah, and then the most uh, triumphant moment here is when um, the captain, when Steve Rogers picks up Mjolnir and starts waving it around and throws it over to Thor, which shows that he is worthy picking up Thor's hammer. Has he never tried that before? Or has he never been worthy before this moment? I don't think he's tried it before. And and Thor himself actually sees this as a really important moment because it shows him that he can trust. Like He's not sure. Because one of the things in the heart-to-heart that that doesn't come into play for the rest of this epic collection is that there is tensions between Iron Man and Captain America right now. Right. And it doesn't come up in this. That's one of those brief times where this epic collection is, is... tying back into the greater Marvel universe. Um, and we know that because Captain America is able to pick up Thor's hammer, uh, Thor decides that Captain America is obviously a friend right yeah. in this dispute with, with Tony Stark. Um, it was interesting, because, and I think you have a clip. I don't know if you're going to play the clip. Sure, I can play um, it. But you have the great clip where um, DeFalco, was it DeFalco? I think not a friend. DeFalco references yep. that he watched Age of Ultron. He watches Captain America trying to pick up the hammer, and he was amused that they, he felt that they were playing off of, of this scene. Sure, so. yeah, let's play that clip. Uh, Walt Simonson introduced the concept that if you're worthy, you can lift the hammer and that, that, you know, and have the power of Thor, and it doesn't matter whether or not you, uh, you're Don Blake or, 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 or you're actually Thor, because that's, that's how Beto Ray Bill was able to lift the hammer. Right. And Ron and I, you know, thought about it. We said, hey, if there's anybody, you know, in the Marvel Universe who's worthy, it's got to be Captain America. I was kind of thrilled in, in um, I guess it was the second Avengers movie, that they, they took our bit. <laughs> they didn't give us credit for it, but they, they used it anyway. Okay, moving on to issue 391, The Madness of Mongoose. So here is one of, um, one of DeFalco and Friends's original creations 
that we f- uh, that first appears in this issue. And uh, well, he doesn't really. That's the funny th- thing. Yeah, that's tricky. Well, why don't I just play the clip for that one as yeah. well? <laughs> Mongoose actually appeared in one panel of one of our Spider-Man stories. Really? We did an issue later in our run where he fought, uh, Spidey fought uh, the Absorbing Man and Titania at the airport. And it was when they were setting up this uh, Masters of Evil thing. And what Tom, the reason Tom had Crusher Creel and Titania at the airport is they were picking up somebody who was intending to join their, the Masters of Evil that was going on in Avengers at that point. Okay. And in that issue, there's like one panel where the person they're supposed to meet gets off his plane and they're not there to meet him because they're fighting Spider-Man. They're tearing up the airport fighting Spider-Man and he disappears into the crowd. And it's a figure wearing a, you know, a big hat and a trench coat, but you see a silhouette and you see the razor sharp teeth. Wow. And that was Mongoose. Okay. Mongoose was originally conceived to be a Spider-Man villain. We were, you know, I I had designed him as a, uh, as a Spider-Man villain and we never got around to doing him in Spider-Man. And so we said, well, you know, you just you want to do Mongoose? And that's why, that's one of the reasons why Spidey guest starred in that issue was oh. because Mongoose had been originally designed for Spider-Man. So it is interesting that Spider-Man is the guest star in this issue. It kind of just makes sense that Spider-Man would be the guest star. Um, well, as you guys just heard in that clip, I mean, this character was supposed to be Spider-Man's problem. Yeah. But we have, uh, we have Thor returning to Earth um, in his civilian disguise, which uh, um, it's not Donald Blake. It is now. I I really I should have asked them how to properly pronounce this name, S- Sigurd, and I'm going to assume it's Jarlson because it's that's how I had assumed it. Sigurd Jarlson, and he's a construction guy. He's a he just kind of is a hired hand. Um, I think in both of the friends and DeFalco interviews, they said that they wanted to, um, you know, Thor knocks the buildings down and Sigurd Jarlson builds the buildings, builds them up again. And that's kind of the, the dichotomy they wanted to. But this is a character, this is a, an identity that Simonson introduced during his run. But it was nice to see Thor coming back to Earth. And because uh, one of my things I said I, I was never really a Thor fan is because he spends all his time in Asgard. And it's just I, I've never been really on board with all of that. Um, that's just the, the style of talking and the, the huge mythology that goes along, uh, goes along with it. But I do really like um, Thor in the 60s when Thor spent his time because he was banished to Earth and he had to deal with the whole being a god but being in, on uh, being on planet and living amongst mortals. There's an interesting story coming up in this where we realize how unique Thor's relationship with humans is because briefly one of the uh, Warriors 3 is also on Earth. Right. And it's a very awkward um, interaction for him. It's, he's, he is a bit lost. Um, so it's interesting because we see how unique Thor is among the Asgardian gods. He is sort of their emissary to Earth, unofficially. 
sort of the same role I guess Wonder Woman plays for the Amazonians in the DC universe if you aren't one of those uh, Marvel loyalists and you've you've bridged the gap. <laughs> right. So it's, but it's an interesting role for you. And you're right, it, it is, it gives Thor that connection, grounds Thor, I think. It makes him more relatable as a character. What do you think of Mongoose? Honestly, to me, Mongoose seemed like a wussy version, version of Sabretooth. <laughs> yeah, he is definitely kind of a like a B-list character. Um, I don't know if anyone's really even done anything with him these days, if he's been around. Because he, he pops up and actually has a major role um, in a couple of volumes down the road when they get into what they call the Black Saga, the Black Galaxy Saga. Mongoose comes back and um, gets mixed up. It, it gets mixed up with like the High Evolutionary and um, all of the, the Knights of Wondagore. I think he's in that... Uh, Quicksilver run this is the last time I think I remember seeing it. Oh yeah, like, really? But not the most recent one where Quicksilver's got his new powers from the Inhumans and is a, a villain again. The, it was a short-lived one with, uh, I can't remember the writer, but Pascal Ferry is the artist. Okay. And I think, I mean, Quicksilver goes to Wondergore and I think Mongoose is there, but I haven't read those books in years. Huh. That's the last time I can think of maybe seeing Mongoose. One of the coolest scenes in this is um, Thor holding up 50-story building all by himself. I think visually it's a great panel. Yeah. Like it's just one page. And it's... Uh, I really like the image. Yeah, me too. Um, this issue is also noticeable, uh, notable for being the first appearance of Eric Masterson. Uh, he just appears in like a, a short scene. Or no, not a short scene. He's through this whole issue, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, but this is... Yeah, and, this, and then he gets injured because of some falling debris. Um, he saves Jerry, Jerry Sopresti, Jerry, yeah, the boss, um, the foreman of the the construction site, but then gets injured in the fight, which actually um, is a a pretty big deal le- uh, later on in this book and and further on. Yeah, hopefully, um, well, not hopefully, but you might recognize his name. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much you, I, Curtis wants you to give away now, so I won't say much else. But yeah, well, I mean. I don't think we get to the point in this volume where we get to give give anything away, right? No, Eric. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll just leave it at that. Um, Eric Masterson, everybody. Eric Masterson. Keep an eye on that guy. He's got potential. Yeah, and we get little snippets of uh, of Asgard and what's going on back there too. And this is the issue where, uh, right at the very end, someone needs to go contact Thor because they desperately need him back on Asgard. So um, Hogan, Hogan the Grim, volunteers. And they can't do it because the Rainbow Bridge is broken, so they can't easily go to Midgard. Uh, so Hogan has to be teleported there, I guess? Yeah, it's interesting, because Thor had trouble getting to Midgard and then they ended up fighting Celestial, so, but they've decided they can sneak Hogan through. So <laughs> Right. So issue number 392 called Quicksand Kills... We meet another creation by uh, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends called Quicksand. Um, this was an interesting issue because uh, I was doing some research about the time, the era that this was this was created, and apparently there was a lot of controversy surrounding generating electricity from nuclear fuel um, of ci- for civilian purposes, um, and so there were a lot of there was. There's a lot of protests and that kind of thing. And this issue, I think, really speaks to to that because the, the character, Quicksand, is 
affected by exactly by that. Uh, it, it's interesting you're saying there's all these protests, and I understand why it would be controversial. Historically, uh, this issue is coming out not a, maybe a year after the Chernobyl incident. So, of course, when they were writing it, or at least planning this out, that would have been a very big talking point yep. globally. Um, and so I can... I can see why that would have been a concern because I I think that most of humanity would agree that blowing up in a nuclear explosion would not be fun. That's true. I would I think really we can get not consensus like that, on that to happen to me or anybody. Um, Daredevil is a guest star in this issue. Yeah, I thought that was fun since we learned that they had wanted to write Daredevil. Yeah. Um, and I had wondered if they had gone back and asked for it or if they had submitted the script after <laughs> the fact. And then ask for forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the funny things about this is that um, Daredevil and Thor actually don't meet at all in these two issues that Daredevil's here. Um, they have kind of their own little stories here, and they never cross paths. Yeah, this, this story is kind of just a, it's a big fight. It can, but this is the one you were talking about where Hogan comes to Earth. Yes, yeah. And it's kind of an awkward meeting. But Hogan... Um, Hogan deals with Daredevil first. That's what the, the story well, that's, is, right? That's, yeah, but I mean, Hogan, like, he is shot at by the police. Uh, I believe he punches a car, if I recall correctly. Is that all the case? But he comes back kind of in his weird state. He doesn't remember why Yeah, he's, he's a there. little bit confusing. Yeah, he, he punches a car. like he, With his mace. A police car, actually. Not just any car, but he, he smashes a, a police car in half. Yeah. And ends up at odds with the police. So, as you can see, the uh, relationship between Hogan and humanity, less smooth than Thor and humanity. Yeah. Um, and I think we can go quickly over to 193 as well, um, because it's just the continuation of the story. It's called the Battle of the... The Blaze of Battle. And I, I think Daredevil deserves some credit for going toe-to-toe with one of the Warriors 3, especially since in a previous issue... In this volume, the warrior, two of the warriors, three successfully destroy a monster that Lear and Thor together couldn't <laughs> subdue. So, right, we know how formidable the warriors are, and I wouldn't say Daredevil wins, but he also isn't destroyed like a police car. So, and I wonder if that's that was why they made Hogan sort of out of it, level the playing field a little. Yeah, like a handicap. I yeah. think so. Um, yep, and we get to see Eric Masterson again, and he's walking with a... He's got a cast, and he's got a crutch. Um, and later on, he'll be walking with a limp. And I really feel like that's a foreshadow to what uh, what's going to happen with his story, because Donald Blake always had a limp as well. He was... Uh, that was kind of his defining thing. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, um, Ron Friends is just a, a solid storyteller. I He's just... Uh, he knows exactly how to lay out a scene. He knows how to um, do great special effects. Um, but then when he's doing his talking moments as well, he, he keeps it interesting. So, um, and then he's, he's being inked by Brett Breeding, who has a really clean style of inking. It makes, uh, it makes, it makes Ron Friends look just classic. Yes. Um, so in this one, Thor's hammer apparently can open portals. It can always open portals. Yeah? 
I've and, never seen that before, but I guess I never really read Thor a whole lot. Yeah, it opens portals. He, I don't know, he spins it at the right speed or something, and he gets a portal. He had opened a portal to get back to Earth, but because uh, the Rainbow Bridge was broken, um, Asgard was adrift through the, uh, not the multiverse, but through all the different realms. And so yeah. I, I guess Thor has to aim, and they weren't in the right spot, and he missed. So Oops. that's why he ended up on Pangora. Oh, okay. So, so that, oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Well, actually, he ended up in space outside of Pangoria, couldn't breathe, and crashed on Pangoria. So that's why he thinks that the Pangorian pirates saved him. Um, moving on here to three ninety four. And how shall mortals, how shall mortals know ye? Um, this I kind of felt was. Oh, it is. It's a fill-in issue by Roger Stern and Bob Hall. We get the first few pages um, by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends and Brett Breeding just kind of finishing up the storyline, but the rest of it... Finishing the Hogan story, mostly. Yeah. It's, it's them finishing their, their exciting run on Daredevil. But then, then we switch to uh, just this fill-in where this one guy um, is trying to... Uh, or uh, they're just recounting old issues of of Thor, different events that happen in, in history, um, definitely to fill time. It's not the, it's not the greatest laid out. It's a lot of, uh, this a looked lot of talking. Yeah, this it was really rushed to me. I'm not exactly sure. I guess I should have asked about why that was happening. But yeah, it's a, it was a fill-in, and it's not incredibly and exciting. It, it reads like a fill-in. <laughs> so, and I think that's all we really need to say about it. We could go in, and I could probably tell you all of the the issues. Most of them are from the '60s that they reference here, because I've, I've read those ones recently. But um, yeah, just kind of funny. So, moving on, number three hundred ninety-six is called "Enter Earth Force," and uh, before we go on to get into this issue, I think I can just play a little clip of Ron Friends talking about creating Earth Force. Earth Force was something that I created in uh, art school. Okay. Uh, they were originally called the Aton Trio, A-T-O-N, which was the Egyptian sun disk was called the Atom. And uh, so I had created these characters. And originally they were, as, as many people do when they're young and, and goofy, uh, they were uh, the characters were based. I was Skyhawk, and uh, Earthlord and uh, uh, Wind Warrior were both uh, based on friends uh, friends of mine from art school. Wow! Uh, and uh, so that was an idea that was sitting in a folder somewhere. And since it was based on on gods, on Egyptian gods, it uh, seemed like uh, it could be a natural fit for uh, for Seth. So we set about, you know, creating characters for them. Uh the the fact that um the, the first names are the same as my friends, Kyle and Pam. Uh originally uh Pam's character's name was Tempest, but there was a Tempest in the new Doom Patrol at the time we were introducing Earth Force. So we changed it to Wind Warrior. And uh, and the reason we didn't use Eton Trio was Tom didn't feel anybody... You'd have to constantly explain what Eton meant. 
<laughs> right. But that's if you remember, uh, they had the the sign that they had been transformed, that they had been changed, was they had the sun disc in their in the palm of their hand. Oh yeah. And that's what they would use to change. So that came from Eton Trio. That was part of the original idea. But yeah, that but that was yeah right out of my sketchbook from uh, from art school. Yeah, there's buddies. It's interesting. Yeah, and I always wonder how he feels about that because it's like, or any of these guys who create like this was a these are characters that he created that are based on people he knew that he's that have been in his head for a long time. So he does it for Marvel, and now Marvel owns them. Well, I mean, I think we know how some people felt about it because they left and made Image. So <laughs> True. <laughs> but Ron didn't do that, I guess. I would like to know how his three friends feel about being part of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I imagine that there are a lot of people out there lead, listening to this who would happily become True. part of the Marvel Universe and be a B or C list superhero. As long as I'm a cool character. You, you could maybe get this amazing uh, costume that the Earth people are wearing, Earth Force is wearing. I think the uh, yellow helmet with the blue leotard and the, the elbow wings. <laughs> the, el- the armpit wings. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, Earth Force is Wind Warrior, but she was supposed to be Tempest. I think that comes up in the interview. Yeah. Wind Warrior and... Um, Earth Lord and Skyhawk. They're not good guys at the beginning. They're right. your classic... Um, yeah, they're created by Seth. Seth creates them to kill Hogan. Right. Um, so they're, they begin as villains, and uh, this is one of those few times where it actually makes sense that heroes fight, because you know we get that classic trope where two heroes meet, and they, they have a dispute, and they fight. In this case, there's no dispute. They're trying to kill Thor's buddy. So Yeah. But it's really interesting, too, because they are... It's a it's a police officer, um, like they're not they're not bad people. They're just uh, they're plucked out of death, I guess. Yeah. And put into these superhero kind of personalities, and um, and are being told, "Hey, I've given you life back, so now you have to do this." But they don't want to do that, and it's pretty clear through their thoughts and stuff that that's what they think. The interesting thing with these guys, I mean, they actually play a semi-important role in this the rest of this epic collection yeah um well this is another instance of um defalco bringing in some characters that you think maybe only will be there for one issue like lear in the beginning but then they get drafted into the war later on they they do come back in the marvel universe years later yeah bendis uh who I, I think might be the greatest Marvel historian because he just loves to go back and dig up random things. Uh, he does throw those characters into his initiative story arc when he does the first Civil War. Really? They are there to be trained properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't think they say anything. I think they are just there. Right. Okay, let's move on to number 396, Into the Realm of Death. This issue is inked by Don Heck, and Don Heck is one of the uh, one of the earliest Marvel artists from the '60s. Like he did big runs on uh, on Iron Man and um, Avengers and such. And so to have him coming back to do work on, on this title is a is a pretty a pretty big deal. Personally, I 
I'm not a huge fan of his inking style. I think that he is uh, he is a little bit of a he's just kind of loose, um, not as tight as Brett breeding. So here's kind of where the battle starts. Uh, Hogan finally gets to uh, gets to talk to Thor and explain what's going on, and uh, then they talk to Earth Force and you know they fix up their little misunderstanding and uh, um, decide to all go to Asgard, and then for Asgard. for Asgard. Um, the the funniest thing I f- I find is that Black Black Knight just kind of thinks he's going to tag along with them. <laughs> he just does. Yep, he's just, what I mean. Black he's just kind of there. He's just here. Shows up in that previous fight. Shows up for this one. Yeah, they meet Grog again, and uh, they get transported to Seth's planet, and yeah, have to fight all of these creatures. These the Death serpent, Legion. The, the Death Legion. <laughs> I love it. But man, he's Seth just has a massive army. They they kind of look like they should be fighting for Cobra Commander for Inchi Joe. To be honest with you, yeah. Well, I mean, I get it. Seth's a snake, also, but but the headgear, the headdress, and like it's a uh, even even Seth looks like he could be out of GI Joe. He does. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the eighties. GI Joe is huge now. Totally. And um, Defalco was involved with both GI Joe and Transformers. That's right. So. Um, yeah, we finally get to see kind of all of the Asgardians in battle. Everyone's there. Um, yeah, they uh, they speak in the interview, and I don't know if I'll play this clip because I've been playing a lot of clips, but um, they've been speaking about how they had no experience doing space battles, and they were so comfortable doing street-level heroes with Spider-Man, which is why they wanted to go on with Daredevil. And then... Um, and then, yeah, they, they get put on Thor. They're like, I don't know how to do cosmic. And then they just go full out, huge cosmic battle, first with the Celestials, now with this. And it's like they, they did a great job. Um, the beginning of this battle, which now extends over the next few issues, is just, uh, it just keeps going and getting bigger and bigger. Issue number 397, When the Gods Make War. I want to point out that there are two inkers in this one, Brett Breeding and Don Heck take different pages, and there's there's even one panel that's repeated, but one's one is inked by Brett and the other is inked by Don, and it's a you can really tell the different styles. So the first one inked by Brett Breeding is on page 341. It's the t- the first panel where Thor is kind of looking over, just looking over this little spiked thing, tabletop or something, yeah. And then you flip over a couple pages later to 344, and you see the same panel itself, but inked by Don Heck. And it looks completely different, even though it's the exact same same panel. And Don, you can see Don just has really thin lines, and uh, he, he goes for more, a little bit, he's just rougher around the edges. Whereas Brett has a much more solid kind of... Uh, um, Determined. Yeah, it's, it's just a, it's more full in his brush strokes it's, it he uh i don't know i like it better than don heck and that's like don heck is is kind of a master so it's kind of i don't know if it's a blasphemy for me to say that i i don't like don heck's inking but that's just kind I of i don't know if you say you're saying you don't like don heck's inking but i agree it makes this panel especially when you can compare it to the identical panel yeah 
Um, it makes it less punchy. It gives it less emphasis. But I find that with all of the pages that he's done, he, he doesn't have the deep black shadows um, that really make the artwork punch out as Brett Breeding does with his work. Yeah, but I think if he had done the entire issue, I don't think it would be as uh, obvious. Right, yeah, that's possible. Well, I mean, it's just a... I felt that way with issue 196 when he when he inked that whole issue too because he just... It's, it's the same. He doesn't have the same sort of boldness, I think, that, uh, that Brett Breeding does. I didn't find it the same way uh, in that it, there was consistency in that one. I think it's yeah. The, I think yeah. You're probably right. It's the fact that it's a it's two very different inkers in one book. But so in this issue, Thor finally manages to defeat Grog, the God Smasher. Um, I was going to say that this is also one of those weird moments where someone else has Thor's hammer. Grog has Mjolnir. He takes it from Thor a few issues earlier. And he says Thor is unworthy and has laid claim to Thor's hammer. But he doesn't, it doesn't explain why he is worthy, but it's interesting because we don't know what worthiness is. Like, the worthiness is interpreted always as being, um, like, a good person or noble or something that are courageous. Yeah. But in this case, it's implied that Grog is the worthier warrior. Oh, okay, that's interesting, yeah. And so Grog now has Mjolnir, and Thor has to face someone with Mjolnir. So what we get when you get to the later issues, um, two issues later, the one we're looking at, the the last showdown with, with Grog here, um, after he's broken the chains in that Ron Heck panel we just discussed, he's facing Grog, the God Crusher, and Grog has Mjolnir. And so Thor has to beat someone who has his powers and take back Mjolnir. And so it's interesting because, again, like I said, Friends and DeFalco are, are really playing with the concept of the worthiness of having Thor's hammer. And in this case, I don't think there's any dispute that Grog is a good person or a noble person, but he has bested Thor in combat and kind of like taking uh, Dumbledore's wand. You, you beat <laughs> the guy, you get the wand. You beat Thor, apparently you're worthy of the hammer, which... Is interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. I don't know if that's something that any other writer has ever interpreted uh, the worthiness in that way. In the, I like the final panel of this issue where we just kind of get the, the lineup of the warriors that Thor has been gathering. Um, Earth Force is still there, and so is Black Knight, even though he didn't really do anything in this issue. <laughs> but um, they are inside Seth's. Pyramid. Pyramid. The Black Pyramid. And so that's where we have the next issue. Um, issue 398. We're coming up to the end here. Um, and in this issue, we see the return of Lear. And um, all of the other kind of warriors of Avalon uh, join in the, the battle. So the, the, To be clear, the warriors in Asgard are losing. Like they right. are. They are not only are they losing. They are disheartened because last they saw, Grog had Thor's hammer, had defeated Thor in combat, and of course Thor was the Odin son. He. They were all desperate to have Thor back. They had thought Thor would come and save them and lead them to victory. Grog defeats Thor. Grog has Mjolnir. Grog takes Thor off to be a prisoner in a pyramid. Yep. Asgard is not. Their their spirits are broken. They are losing this fight. 
Yeah, and Baldur's having these issues as well. Of, like he's always kind of struggled with being the ruler of Asgard because um, he doesn't think he's going to be good enough and stuff. But uh, which is an odd thing for someone whose name is the Bold. <laughs> the the action really ramps up here, and we also get to see Enchantress, which she's kind of been off in the sidelines through this this whole book, but she pops up here. She's at the beginning telling her love story. That's true. But then again, this is where. And I don't even think he planned it. Both Enchantress and Lorelei are in his first Thor story ever. Yep. And he brings them back now. They're in this, they're suddenly in this fight. Yeah, and they have to put their, you know, this is their home, so they're not at odds with anybody. Um, they, she, she sacrifices herself. But then, yeah, like I said, Lear joins the fight with his uh, comrades. And yeah, we just get, it's one of these battles that where, Everybody that we've met so far, it's like the Civil War um, movie. Like everybody who we've met yes. so far in all of these movies is now all, all in one movie. So we've all of these people who are in all of these issues are now all together in one issue. And the big thing at the very end of this one, of course, is that they find Odin. Uh, he's actually alive. He's been he's in the Black Pyramid. He's been held captive by. Seth. And this is where you really need to go back to the Simonson run 50, pay, 50 issues previous. Right. Um, this is where it really starts to get heavy into continuity of Thor. Because, well, I mean, as you're going to see, as we read through this issue, um, Asgard faces not only Seth, but now they're going to face Surtur. And... Odin died 50 issues previous, saving Asgard from Surtur. Yeah. And that's when the bridge was destroyed. Yeah, the river bridge was destroyed. So now we know that Odin wasn't dead. He's been held by Seth, who is one of the different gods of death in the Marvel Universe. Right. Yeah, well, let's keep on going uh, to number 399. When Asgard dies, that doesn't bode well for Asgard, I think, that title. But we start in uh, at, on Earth with a close-up of... Uh, of Eric Masterson and his son Kevin looking at the sky because everything that's happening in Asgard is so huge that it is affecting the all atmosphere the of, of Midgard and yeah. Well all the nine realms and but we're seeing Midgard's perspective. It's a neat uh, double page. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's always neat in these old comics to see the World Trade Centers. It's um, a little bit sad. Yep, it's uh, they're they're all over these old issues because they were so iconic. Yeah, so this is uh, this issue has a few cool moments. Um, you know, they they go down to Asgard Hell to try and uh, see if what's her name? Is it Hella? Um, that's not Hella though, but that is it's Carnilla. And again, this is Simonson's run uh, because Carnilla tried to extort Balder when it looked like he was going to take over. And Balder, um, he stood up to her, and, and he, but he had to get her to go and fight in Midgard while Odin and Thor were fighting Surtur way back 50. Like I said, this is, this is going way back again, but this is those, that, that Simonson um, 351 and 353 missed three issues, but it's so big, and this is where we're revisiting that again. So Carnilla is back because of her tying into the overall story that we've picked up on. Hmm. Yeah, it's neat when um, 
when they'll go back and acknowledge what's come before when creators do that rather than you know start all over again and uh you know they want to just leave, leave their own mark and create their own characters and they bring in their own set of supporting cast members and they forget about everything that's happened before well it's interesting is they put all that effort into honoring everything else and yet all they did was shaved a beard and said he's better so. <laughs> yeah. well i guess certain elements work better than others i guess i don't know yeah um so we see the reunion between thor and odin and it's a happy one sort of i mean it's bad circumstances but they're happy to have him back but and Black Knight's still here. He's still He's uh, helping out. out. But this is key because this is Baldur's big moment. He, Asgard's losing, and Thor is gone. They don't have a hero. Odin, is, as far as I know, has been dead for years. They think Thor is defeated. So, and the Asgardian forces are losing, so Baldur heads out to fight Seth and to try and do what Thor and Odin couldn't because... In the end, he's proving a worthy leader of Asgard, even if he's going to be the last leader of Asgard, as he, he thinks at this time. And I thought they killed him off until I see him later on. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, uh, I think there's uh, a few moments where, where friends and, and DeFalco create this real sense of tragedy. Like, you do think they are gone. You think they're sacrificing these characters. I mean, we know it's comic books, so they'll be back in the next few years, but... but within the context of the story, they actually create a level of suspense yeah. to generate that sense of, of loss. Which well, in this huge battle, it's like they can't all possibly come out unharmed. Like, nobody actually dies throughout this story. Um, but yeah, you still get a sense that this is actually, this is a big deal and it's dangerous stuff. Um, one thing about Black Knight that I wanted to mention is that he... Uh, in every single issue, and this is typical comic book writing in the 80s, they have to, Black Knight's thinking to himself that he's got this curse that is fusing him with his sword and it's getting harder and harder to move. And so that's kind of been slowly building through these issues as well. I miss Thought Bubbles. They <laughs> yeah. are a device that is not used enough anymore. So at the very end of this one, Odin gives Thor the Odin power in order to boost Thor's strength in order to uh, defeat Seth. And that's a pretty big deal. Um, because Odin knows that Thor is going to have to go up against Surtur. Um, I found that Surtur kind of came out of left field. But I guess if Odin's alive, then yeah, Surtur's going to be alive too. But uh, I, I feel like they didn't really need to have Surtur in this at all. Well, I think they were told to go epic and huge and celestial, and so they went epic and huge and celestial, and if you're going to do that, then... They did, but it kind of just distracts. Like, they've been building and building this giant war, and all of a sudden now we have a different focus. doesn't matter because Thor beats him. <laughs> It takes them a whole issue, a supersized issue. A supersized 400th issue. Yes. Yeah, so I don't know how Ron can just do all of these. Like, he's he's a fast penciler. If he's doing regular issues all the way up here and then does a supersized issue too and stays on track. Although I guess the supersized issue has some backup stories in it, doesn't it? So He it, also took off that, that blatant filler issue. That's right. Maybe he used that to get ahead a little bit. So in this, I want to point out, I'm, 
I don't know why, but I like to point out the inkers. Joe Sinnott is the inker for issue 400. He is one of the original Marvel guys. He always was inking um, the early, uh, a lot of Kirby stuff and that kind of thing. And so this, when you were saying that there's a lot of Kirby influence in uh, Friends' work here, Friends openly admits that he um, does a lot of stuff. He just rips off Kirby a lot. Um, to create that that style, but it's Joe Sinnott's finishes here that really give you that sense. Like you get the the Kirby crackle all over the place, and um, it just all of the lines and, and this style really really this, evokes Kirby. This issue in particular, yeah, it yeah. channels Kirby. Yep, the whole way through, and it's I really think it's a lot because of Joe Sinnott's work here. But yeah, here's the final the final battle. It's a doozy. There's just every it, the whole thing is just a huge, huge battle. And the thing about this is that Thor is now struggling to defeat Surtur. He doesn't actually get to uh, fight Seth. No, Seth is opposed by his own creations. Yeah, um, Earth Force fights Seth. Uh, Odin is fighting a giant snake, and um, Hogan. Is also fighting um, back on Asgard against against this giant creature, and it's Hogan who realizes why we've been stuck watching Black Knight fuddling around this whole time. Yeah, so the curse that Black Knight has uh, been fighting has finally overtaken him, and he is now fused with his Ebony Blade. And the Ebony Blade is indestructible; it is the hardest substance in the Marvel universe. And so Hogan takes. Black Knight and hurls him into Seth who has become a large snake and uh, and destroys him. So Black Knight did have a purpose and that's one of the things about DeFalco that, that we've been talking about it's like yeah he puts these things in and we think they have no purpose or like that's random why is that going to be but he's thinking long game and he's got a plan um, for the character overall. It's it's interesting to me how many times the Marvel Universe comes with in, comes up with indestructible metals. <laughs> yeah, I know. You think they could? But just this is the on. most indestructiblest yes, of indes- all. Yeah, the indestructiblest metal ever. Yeah. Well, this was a good finale. I thought it was a uh, full of great uh, great action and it tied up storylines and characters. And Earth Force got to go back to their Earth bodies. They didn't actually die. Nope. Um, with the knowledge of what what happened, and then Thor ends with a uh, classic do I stay on Asgard or do I go to Midgard and that's something he's been struggling with since the 60s well in this case he has to go back to Midgard he wants to try and help Black Knight so he he asks permission to take Black Knight back to Earth right and so we have a couple of backup stories as well um, they are kind of take it or leave it um, they're just kind of there to fill some space um, did you want to speak to any of these in particular? Not overly. Um, there's some interesting commentary that who shall be worthy touches on who's had the hammer now. So if you're keeping track, there's only been uh, four people. That's page 440. Except they don't include Grog the uh, the God Smasher. Yeah. I, I don't think Grog the God Smasher sm- shows up on any list of people who've been worthy <laughs> of Mjolnir. And I'm not sure that uh, anyone else has been worthy for that reason Right. Um, but like I said, for, for Friends and DeFalco, they were really playing around with what the worthiness of the hammer was. And yep. then, um, if you're interested, 
441 just gives you the different women in Thor's life. So, yep. so if you're if you're not familiar with Asgard and its characters, then that's a a brief introduction to a few of them. And then there's the story when Volstagg was in flower, which is kind of a funny story. And it starts off with this great scene of um, Fandral and Hogan having a, a bow staff battle on a log, which is very reminiscent of, you know, a famous scene from Robin Hood. This one's interesting, though, because um, Friends and DeFalco are both responsible for it, but neither of them is the, like, Friends is not the penciler. Friends and DeFalco are the writers. Right. And it is a different person, Rich uh, Yanizeski, who I, I don't know anything else Rich Yanizeski has done. Do you, do you know, nope. Curtis? So Rich Yanizeski is the artist on this story that is plotted by uh, who is normally DeFalco's penciler. Yeah, so following this volume, moving forward, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends are always credited as co-plotters from now on. Um, they they established themselves I, I guess they just their working relationship is that they talked about the plot so much before they put it down on paper it wasn't just Tom's idea it Ron had just as much input if I'm not mistaken some point around the end of this run or well they're still on Thor anyways DeFalco becomes editor-in-chief right so he probably wouldn't have had as much time to flesh things out for Friends, I would imagine yeah, maybe. that was. Yep. I mean, not to say that Friends contributions were not important at any point, but um, they may have almost been a, a increased. There. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, there's one story here at the end, um, starring Loki, which is drawn by Charles Vess, which uh, I love his artwork. He's just got a completely different style than anything you see in Marvel these days. Um, I mean, even back then. Um, he's always a fantasy guy. He illustrated a lot of, you know, Lord of the Rings and that kind of stuff. And he does a really cool story here. And then, of course, you get a Fred Hembeck cartoon. <laughs> I always love them. They A lot of these volumes just throw in a, a Fred Hembeck cartoon from Marvel Age or wherever they, they, they showed up. More importantly, you get a pinup on page 464. True. Of Sif. Yep. <laughs> well, there because you go. We know that really you bought the epic collection for the one pinup. The one pinup, yeah. So, overall thoughts on this volume, Craig? I actually really enjoyed it. It was a look at Thor. I haven't encountered Thor. Is one of those funny characters I have read on and off for the years. Like, I've had long stretches on Thor books because, as I said, I follow creators. So yep. um, I I read Thor after the Hero's Return story when it was John Romita Jr. Yep. Um, loved that run. I was on it for the Fraction run. I've read large chunks of the Simonson run. Um, I, I didn't read this run. The Simonson run I had to go back to. The Simonson run, I mean, let's be clear, It I was between the ages of not existent in four <laughs> when it first came out yeah. um, so I missed it originally um, but had a chance to revisit it so it's it was interesting to to visit it I, I mean I've, like I said yeah the fraction run Straczynski had a brief I think it was Straczynski had a brief run on on this book um, and so I've, I've been on and off of Thor as creators have gone off and on of Thor um, so I have, I have I've had some familiarity and I have always actually really enjoyed Thor as a character but um, 
not not consistently um, in that sense. And it's funny because these are two creators that I have enjoyed on previous things and had overlooked their contribution to the canon of Thor itself. Right. Um, and so it was nice to go back and revisit that and to appreciate, like you said, they do street-level stories, and I think most of my exposure to them has been Spider-Man or Spider-Girl. Right, yeah. Um, uh, I don't think they actually ever wrote New Warriors, but they created the New Warriors, and the New Warriors were, especially at the beginning, as street-level as you get with yeah. your skateboarder <laughs> superhero. Yeah. Um, they did Avengers 2, A2. Yeah, they did a lot of the Marvel um, 2... Yeah, what whatever is, that what was, was called, the future called. versions of Juggernaut and all that. Yeah, um, yeah, they did those guys, um, and they did. I think I'm going to spoil it now for all of you that are trying to figure out Eric Masterson. They did Thunderstrike. Yeah, and I, I he was the street level Thor. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed Thunderstrike, um, and so that was my exposure to these creators, and I had not even thought to go back and try and piece together their Thor run. Yeah, it's really interesting. So if you are um, if you're a fan of these these epic collections as well, um, coming up in August, the volume seventeen is coming up. Coming Which up, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, so I think we'll definitely have to talk about that one. I'm looking forward to, and I'm also looking forward to seeing if the Falco and friends, and I'm sure they have, we're building into that from what we just read. Like right. I'm sure there are Easter eggs in here, things in here that we have overlooked that will play a role in that yeah we will find out um great yeah i really enjoyed this volume too i thought it was um it was thor like i've not i haven't really experienced thor so uh it was nice that there's an there was a, a really good blend of the epic space stuff as well as the down-to-earth stuff as so i felt like i who wanted a street level thor like i i've read in the 60s could could appreciate that, um, but then also gave me a good hint of uh, the space stuff because I'm I've never really followed any of the cosmic stuff in Marvel, so I'm going to be uh, talking with another guy about one of my other co-hosts, James, about Silver Surfer in a future episode. And I've been looking into that volume, and it's quite fascinating. It's kind uh, of my first real. I will be definitely listening to that Silver Surfer is a character that I have never had a lot of exposure to. Cool, um, but yet always enjoyed. Like, I always think yeah. he's kind of cool, uh, goofy gimmick, um, but I have never had a long, uh, never really read much Thor Surfer. Right. I guess in the same way you haven't really touched on, on Thor. Yeah. Well, I haven't touched on Silver Surfer either. I just have kind of steered clear of the, the space guys, but that one I'm looking forward to as well. So I'm, I'm open to, to all of this stuff and learning about it and experiencing it, and this was a good example. Yeah, I yeah, we both recommend people picking up War of the Pantheons, um, and uh, digging into a little bit of Thor history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and don't it, like I said, there's some reference back to the the Simonson Run, but you can enjoy this without that. I think so. Too. You don't you don't need to have read the Simonson Run to enjoy this book. Um, if you're wanting to, you can go hunt that down. I don't know if it's been collected. Those three issues have been collected or not. But the you don't, ones, it's, you don't yeah. need them to appreciate this uh, this collection. Yeah, they do a pretty good job of of uh, cluing you in. And it's, it's because it's the start of a creator run. Um, the way they're breaking up the epic collections is pretty smart. So they, they're trying to 
a new volume will start when a new creative team comes on. And usually those are jumping on points. And so this is a pretty good jumping on point. Yeah. Yep. Well, thanks, Craig. Thanks for being on the show today. Um, I look forward to our next episode, which I haven't really talked to you about what we're going to do, but um, I'll show you which volume I'd like to tackle next. All right, but if we're doing any more cool interviews, I want to be part of them. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about Doctor Strange with you in the next issue. I would love to talk about Doctor Strange. Great. Uh, and we'll, yeah, and so this will be Doctor Strange Volume 3, A Separate Reality, and uh, it deals with um, a very weird period when he didn't really have a title of his own, um, kind of just coming off of his 60s title that was, was canceled, and he's kind of in limbo for a good chunk of the 70s. And uh, yeah, we'll deal with that. It's, it's, uh, it looks cool, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, if you haven't checked us out on Facebook or our website, epicmarvelpodcast.com, please go ahead and do that. Otherwise, yeah, we'll see you next time. Definitely. Definitely.